The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody here this morning. So we've been uh, looking at the Buddhist teachings about path now for quite a while. Started in January just with this preliminary look at how the Buddha talks about wisdom in terms of an ordinary human being like you or me getting on a spiritual path where we realize, you know, realistically the limitations of using all of our life energy to per- pursue comfort. It's not that course there's anything wrong with being comfortable and having wealth or having a a nice place to live and a good set of friends or something like that but it doesn't take that much perspective to realize the limitations of a hundred percent that's going to take care of me because it won't however nice our home is however however great our set of friends are no matter what kind of health we have, it's a fragile proposition, right? It's going to change. So getting on a spiritual path is just that initial awakening that, yeah, comfort is nice, safety is good, wholesome friendships, wonderful, good health, great. But how is that going to work in the end? Right? doesn't. So... That just doesn't mean we have the answer at that point. It just means we're curious. So what else might somebody do with this life? This is from an interesting book around uh, about right livelihood. It's called A Whole Life's Work by Lewis Richmond. And they write... Um, <coughs> or suppose we go deeper and ask... Of all the kinds of work we do, what is our most important work? What are we doing here in this world anyway, where each of us arrives naked and helpless with no map or compass, like a trainee in some cosmic outward-bound program? As we struggle to get our arms around these questions, there are two things we know for certain. Today we are here, and someday, sometime, we will be gone. During our time on this planet, what will we do? What is our responsibility to ourselves, to our family and friends, to our community, to our nation, to all people, and the innumerable creatures that inhabit the earth, the sea, and the sky? Do we have responsibility for any of it, or is it beyond our power? What do we say? How do we act? In other words, what is our whole life's work? So it begins, the path begins with just the sense that it matters, right? And we, in discerning like how it matters, we realize there are skillful ways of me relating to my, the conditions, the experiences in my life. And there are unskillful ways. There are ways I can relate that plant seeds of suffering and stress for myself and others. And there's ways I show up and relate that plant seeds that feel good, that are light, that are healing, 
that are helpful. And so we take this basic insight into the most practical and dense or gross or obvious part of our lives, all of our relationships to everything, how we relate to others, how we relate to food, how we relate to possessions. And now for this week and next week, how we relate to this essential part of life, which is about finding our way or earning a living or surviving, you know, so livelihood, wise livelihood, bringing our practice into this part of life that's all about figuring out how am I going to pay my bills or how I'm going to feed myself and those I'm responsible for. Like, well, what does practice look in this realm? It's interesting, you know, this early Buddhist tradition that common ground practice in Theravada Buddhism more and more these days, we just refer to it as early Buddhism as opposed to some of the many later schools of Buddhism. And uh, in, <coughs> in this tradition, uh, monasticism is like a really powerful symbol. Now, we don't see it as much here in the West, those of you who've been had the good fortune to travel in some of Buddhist uh, cultures like Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka, Cambodia, and many others, you know, it's really obvious, the symbol of monasticism. And it it's sort of an interesting take on wise livelihood because, <laughs> you know, as a symbol, you know, they're purposefully dependent on lay people to give them shelter, to give them robes that they wear, basically orange-colored sheets that they wrap around, usually one around the waist, one over the shoulder, and then a third that is used when it's colder out. And they have a bowl, and they have a few toiletries, and then that's about it. I mean, that's the traditional. You should be able to carry everything you own in your little monastic bag, so not much stuff. And then they're dependent on lay people to feed them every day because they can't really store any food overnight except for medicines. And so how might that be a symbol you know, for us in our <laughs> much more complicated lives where we're you know, deciding where we're going to eat lunch and where we're going to go on vacation and, you know... Imagine getting all our possessions in a little bag. Not going to happen for most of us. But the, the symbol of monasticism is really the happiness, like really reminding us, like a beacon, reminding us about the happiness of renunciation or the happiness of contentedness, the happiness of fewness of wants. I don't know if you've done any of this lately where you've had a lot of stuff cluttering your closet and then you just like really go to town and like, am I going to wear this? Am I going to ever use this? Could somebody use this more than I'm likely to use this, make use of this? And you really strip away a lot and you get it down to like what's actually needed in my life. And what's that feeling? It feels good. There's a real quality of contentment with what I have as opposed to wanting what I don't have. What does that feel like? 
thinking that I need this, that, and the other thing in order to feel safe, what's that feeling like? I can't be happy now because I'm pretty sure if I got this, that, and the other thing, then... So if I'm imagining that getting something is going to make me happy, then not having something is what? Unhappy. We can't have a scenario running in our heart that if I get this and that, if I fix this and that, if I go over there, if I have this, if I get that, then I'll be happy. You can't have those mental activities without feeling more and more bad about your present conditions. You don't get one without the other. So whenever we're imagining some wonderful scenario for ourselves, we're starting to feel burdened by our present scenario. We can't be hopeful without fear. We had a workshop yesterday, maybe a few few of you were there, Mesky and Shelley and I led it, on... uh, just relating wisely to uncertainty and change and really learning to how to manage the kind of anxiety that naturally comes up for us human beings. And um, I quoted this uh, from Milarepa. He's sort of a patron saint in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the later schools of Buddhism. And uh, in the maybe around the 13th century, I think, he lived. But he's quite like a folk hero in Tibetan Buddhism and known as like a really hardcore practitioner. Uh, And um, when his practice was really going well, he had a lot of concentration, a lot of stability of present moment awareness, really seeing things as they are, not getting confused by cravings that would arise. Oh yeah, that's just the craving mind, craving heart, right? So it's, you know, in this more uh, ornate style of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, the, they have this idea of the expression of the heart as the kinis, they're called, these feminine wisdom energies, like little internal angels who like to dance and chant wisdom. So it's like your own wisdom humming along. You're really developing insight, clarity, and your own heart and mind starts to sing back to itself. That's how they describe it. And you know, if you've ever seen any of the Tibetan uh, religious art, Buddhist art, it's really beautiful, interesting. And so they have these dancing feminine deities chanting wisdom back toward oneself. And what would they chant to Milarepa? On the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie awaiting. And when we think about livelihood and money in general, right, it's a lot of fear and hope. Hope that money's going to solve problems, fear that I won't have the money to solve my problems. And we, you know, how much, I mean, honestly, how much of our mental activity and just our being has been dominated, like especially these later years, you know, since we've been 15 maybe, For me, it was even earlier. As soon as I got my first paper route job, I don't know, maybe fourth grade, you know, money was a deal. It was a big deal to be able to go to the store and buy some candy, like independently, not independent of my parents because I had my own money. It was like, I can get myself happiness. I'm not dependent on somebody else. Sugar. 
And so um, we we just want to start looking at the deal. You know, it's really a deal with the devil, the devil of craving, the devil of fear and hope. That particular syndrome that is well-greased in all of our hearts and minds. And it's it's really the whole paradigm, the non-monastic paradigm. Now, I'm not saying all monks and nuns are sort of living a good life or wise life, nor all lay people involved in duties and responsibilities in homes and paying for the kids' school and all that stuff. Not all of them are unwise, of course, right? That's all of us, right? <laughs> We're lay people. We've got duties and responsibilities and need to deal with these things. But it, it's really about turning this corner, taking care of these worldly responsibilities, having shelter, having food, having clothes, taking care of the people that are dependent on us, like children or, or elderly people that we might be taking care of or whoever it might be. And then people in our community, of course, that we, take, we can take care of. Um, but how to own those responsibilities with a lot of wholeheartedness, a lot of wisdom, a lot of compassion, but also valuing the joy of renunciation and really seeing the limitations. Like, However, uh, however much happiness comes from taking care of responsibilities, these worldly responsibilities, it's always going to be fragile. And there's a deeper joy which we put under the category of the joy of renunciation, the joy of letting go, the joy of non-attachment, the joy of this heart, your heart, my heart, all of our hearts, free or not dependent on anything. So this worldly happiness is dependent. When I take care of my responsibilities with a lot of integrity, I feel good. When I neglect my responsibilities and there's some pushback or there's some shame or there's, well, it doesn't feel good, right? So this is a tenuous area, but we can use the worldly responsibilities, livelihood, this whole world of complexity as a training ground for this deeper happiness. And that's really the essence of the Buddhist path. It's not that every one of us has to be a monk or a nun that leaves behind the world of responsibilities, is practicing celibacy, so we're not involved in sexual relations, we're not having children, and we're really practicing being dependent on the generosity of the lay community. No one else, if no one feeds me, I don't eat. <clears throat> no one gives me shelter, I don't have a place to stay. That's the <clears throat> excuse me, traditional model for the monks and nuns. Right? So but we wanna use that symbol of renunciation of non dependence or non um, non entanglement, let's say, with worldly responsibilities as an inner practice, how to be a parent but not entangled, how to have to have a job to earn a living without being burdened by the entanglement, the actual outward entanglement of having a job, how to find a job that 
leaves the heart uplifted instead of, you know, that grind or that compromise of taking a job where we don't align with the values of the corporation or don't align with the values of the organization. How do we deal with this, you know, oppressiveness of being a living being who has to eat and needs warmth and needs community, right? How to deal with these very unavoidable needs and be free, right? So this is really how we see right livelihood. Because otherwise, when you're going to hear these teachings over the next couple weeks, you're going to, the tendency of our minds is to think of them as some threshold. Like, if I check this box and check this box, then I know I have wise livelihood. I'm good there. On to the next step on the spiritual path. I'll accomplish that. I jump through that hoop. And eventually, I get nibbana, nirvana, you know, full awakening. I'm really cool. I'll probably shine, you know, <laughs> or something like that. This is, this is the idea we have. As opposed to like another vision of the whole spiritual path is we start getting a sense that freedom is really possible. And then comes the deeper understanding. And that freedom depends, this is really essential, Freedom depends on the exposure to the messiness and complexity of human existence. It doesn't depend on escaping it. Like, if only I get to that place, and this is what all of us, I'm assuming, for sure me, imagines. If I get to that ideal place where I don't have any responsibilities, they're just crickets and fireflies and northern lights you know, in sunny days, no mosquitoes. And, you know, I have a neighbor a mile away and they're just great folks, really ready to help, not obnoxious in any way, you know, just the way I want them to be. All the people around me living in harmony, you know, mountain lions and wolves that don't kill the animals that I don't want them to kill. And when they do have to kill to eat, it's out of sight. I don't see, right? This is the sort of, but that's not nature. That's not the world we live in. And when we buy from this place, we're not buying from that place. And that place is owned by a family too that wants to live and wants to be able to pay their mortgage. And everything has consequences, when we're living in this messy world. So what does freedom look like when you have to have a job or you have to ask for help from somebody who does have a job or from the government, which is just all of us, right? People who are on disability um, or whatever. So we all have to find our way. We all have to get our food, our shelter, We all have to belong in whatever ways we can belong, be included, have relationships. And how do we navigate all that complexity? And it really means like we're going beyond, we're we're taking care of this earthly, worldly business, this beastly business, you could say, like that we need shelter, we need food, 
We need relationships. We're taking care of it. We're wholehearted. We're learning not to be afraid of it. But we're not imagining that it's an end in itself. We're using it as a spiritual training ground to explore the possibility of freedom. And this is the same with like intimate romantic relationships. Like how to be in relationship without thinking it's an end, like it's going to lead to happiness, but more like how to be in relationship and be free. And if you're currently practicing not being in relationship, then it's really exactly the same thing. How to not be in an intimate relationship and be free. If you have a pet, how to have a pet, take care of the responsibility of having a, re- a pet wisely, you know, seeing it really all the complexities of what it is to have a pet or to have a child or to have whatever, to be engaged in a community, to take on responsibilities without being burdened. And that's where the real learning is in life. You know, of course, the Buddha gives us some guidelines about wise livelihood. I mean, it's it's basically what you would imagine all the more specific teachings are really um, about not causing harm. Let me just read. This is from that book I've been telling people about, The Noble Eightfold Path, Way, Way to the End of Suffering by Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's an American Buddhist monk who's uh, practiced for many decades in Sri Lanka and really one of the important translators from the Pali language, the original language, the teachings were recorded into English over the last number of decades. He's now semi-retired, living at a monastery in, I think, New York State now. Um, But uh, he wrote this book, and you can get it on uh, the weekly email, which maybe I'll just make a plug real quick for people who are coming regularly to get on the weekly email. You can do it on our website, or there's a sheet of paper under the bulletin board. And we send one week, uh, one email out a week with the updates, and especially these days with the virus, and we'll be changing some of the procedures in the building now because of the virus. Um, it's just good for the community to be able to communicate back and forth. So get yourself on that weekly email if you'll be coming. And where we list this program, the Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night weekly practice, we have a link to this book, which you can download for free online, And then also, um, because we talked about why speech, I linked a wonderful article by Sharon Salzberg called Workplace Communication Challenges. And she just lists some really pragmatic techniques for wise, functional, skillful speech out in the world. So you might want to take a look at that short article, really good advice. In any case, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's little booklet on on the Eightfold Path, this is what He says, the Buddha says, about wise livelihood. Wise livelihood is concerned with ensuring that one earns a living in a righteous way. For a lay practitioner, the Buddha Buddha teaches that wealth should be gained in accordance with certain standards. One should acquire it only by legal means, not illegally. One should acquire it peacefully, without coercion or violence. One should acquire it honesty, not by trickery or deceit. And one should acquire it in ways that do not entail harm and suffering to others, for others. 
the Buddha mentions five specific livelihoods which can bring harm to others and are therefore to be avoided. <clears throat> Dealing in weapons, in living beings, um, in meat production, in butchery, in poisons, and intoxicants. The Buddha further names several dishonest means of gaining wealth which fall under wrong livelihood. Practicing dis- deceit, treachery, soothsaying, trickery, usury, Obviously, any occupation that requires violation of wise speech and wise action is a wrong form of livelihood. But other occupations, such as selling weapons or intoxicants, may not violate those factors and yet be wrong because of the consequences for others. All right, so that sort of makes sense that we'd want to be really careful about you know, just understanding the implications. I mean, I was someone raised by a parent who worked for the defense industry their whole life. Right? So all the food I ate, the home I was raised in, you know, all the comforts I had as a kid came from a corporation that was, you know, building devices for the Navy and the Air Force. And um, there's no way, you know, we're in this world. It's complex. But the question is, are we willing, like, are we in the mode of opening to the complexity, like feeling, growing roots, curiosity into the complexity of cause and effect, of complicity with all the oppressive forces? Or are we burying our head? I just don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't need to know who made this where it came from, or shopping in this way, I don't really care. I don't want to. It's too complex to know what the implications of shopping in this way versus this other way, right? And that's the thing. If we see the solving of our worldly issues, problems as a burden, then we're going to justify all sorts of shortcuts and But if we see it as a training ground for freedom, then we embrace the complexity in a different way. So it isn't a problem like, you know, these days where we tend to shop more and more online and then we think, oh, yeah, well, then that doesn't, you know, then there aren't people in these big box stores. Is that good or bad? Well, there are real jobs there. So those jobs go away. Well, that's not good. But then, you know, we don't need all these big box stores. That might be good. But then we have all this packaging. Well, that's not good. You know, it's just like it's complex. But we're not, see, that idea that I need the right answer. Shop online or don't shop online. Take this job at this place or don't take this job. Say something to the boss or not saying. See, we think that, oh, God, I just need the right answer. And then I'm safe. I'm a good person and not a bad person. And instead, we're, we're understanding that the real healing in freedom is the non-fear with the complexity and the not knowing with certainty. So we're giving up the idea of certainty because where the real freedom comes is like uh, moving into life. You see, like when I don't know how to be a good partner or I don't, 
have some idea that I'm a good Dharma teacher, that I'm doing my job as a leader here at Common Ground perfectly, if I don't have that fixed view, then I'm naturally more and more interested moment by moment, how am I doing? How does this feel? Does it feel like I'm doing my job with integrity or does it feel like I'm sort of being false in some way or just getting by? getting by with as much as I can get by with. Like, how good of a teacher do I need to be to earn enough to pay my bills? You know, I mean, that's an attitude we sort of justify sometimes instead of, like, what way of showing up for our jobs actually is free, freeing or liberating, so that when I come home from a day of work, I feel... enlivened or free as opposed to I'm in this war with my employer, you know, and they're trying to extract as much as they can from me and I'm trying to extract as much as I can from them, right? This is often, and that's why at the center we talk about this spirit, this teaching or practice of dana, (coughs) which is, you know, gets loosely translated as generosity, But it's this intention to have relationships that are based on a spiritual principle, not on a dog-eat-dog kind of capitalist model. What can I get away with? What can I take away? And then if we get a little bit more and have to give a little bit less, we feel like we win. Or if they get a little bit more and we end up paying the price, we feel like we got screwed. So it's really this, and I see this in my relationship with my partner, this attitude comes all the time uh, up in our relationships. So can that change in terms of how we earn a living? Whatever it is, like even if the way we pay our bills is because we're retired and we're getting a pension or we're getting our Social Security, like what is the way that the heart holds that, relates to that? Are we freely receiving both the money that we've put in, but the generosity of the wider society supporting our livelihood? Are we really feeling that generosity? Are we giving back still, even though we're retired? Our love, our good wishes, our different ways we can still contribute to the well-being of ourselves and others? Or are we taking ourselves out like, Now I'm a taker. Now I'm a giver. As opposed to always being in that circle of giving and receiving. Always taking responsibility for it and seeing it as a path to freedom. Not getting away from responsibility, but being free in responsibility. So I'll leave it here. It would be nice to hear. We have about 10 minutes before the kids come. So we have time for a few people just to share what you've learned in your own dynamic of livelihood, the complexity of that. Yeah, start us out. Lincoln, you want to pass this back? All the way to the back. Is it working? So, uh, interestingly, I was reading um, uh, uh, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, books yesterday and about the Eightfold Path. And there's a a, a piece in there that talks about 
living the eightfold path is the way to end suffering. And I was very struck with that because my image has always been going the other way. You know, there's suffering and then there's realizing there's suffering and then there's a way to end suffering and then there's the eightfold path. So that was a, a good piece. Yeah. So the path, that's the, for people who like maps, the Four Noble Truths, the last, it's kind of a part of the practice. We, we're not interested in the path, the Eightfold Path, until we realize, oh, there is suffering, and it matters how we show up, and there is the release from it. So that's what makes someone on a spiritual path, and then they're interested in the path, which is bringing awareness to the whole life, the breadth of our life. Yeah. Thanks, Lincoln. Yes, Pete. And then we'll go over here. Yeah, I, I was I've been on a journey with my livelihood for some time. And um I owned a small company for a while and uh, uh but it didn't feel it was felt like it was just earning money. And um there wasn't conflict as far as except some of the companies did manufacture weapons that I sold to. So I had to shift, and I it was really tough because the giving away also was giving away of ego and what I'd built up. And so it was really uh, a deep, profound experience uh, to let go of the way I used to live. And I've since done training, so I'm working in solar today, which is more in that mission-oriented place but it's still not like, oh, that's it. Um, there's still the complexity of I'm still doing things that I, you know, sometimes I'm objecting to the way what you said about the employer wanting to extract from me, having that belief rather than just the flow. So it's not like there was this panacea that suddenly developed, but there was a sense of being on a journey. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Steve. We're going to go over here. My name is Christine, and it's two different points, I think, um, but I had come here to a retreat uh, that Shelley led for uh, in August, and it was right after I had lost a job, and I had had a lot of different jobs in the labor movement and organizing or then later recruiting, so I've always identified really strongly as my job, and in the meditation, you know, it was about a nine-hour meditation retreat, she had the idea that what if we imagine there are no problems? And it was especially important for me to think about at that time because I could think of seven problems or eight or nine or ten. or um, And I played with it, even though that was in the summer, I played with the idea of what if there are no problems? And I've offered it to friends when they're going through some kind of suffering or struggling and it seems like it's the answer to your the um, yeah. that fear and hope, you know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I just wanted to share that. And that's why the working ground of our livelihood, really it's that like showing up to the complexity and how it can never work perfectly, but maybe that's okay. And it, that's the basic scenario too because we have birth and death as a human being, right? Was that, does that have to be, can there be freedom in that? Or is that essentially a problem that, 
the death part. Yeah, Emil. I have, I want to share something from my work experience, and then I have a, a question. Um, now that I'm retired, I look back at parts of my work career, and I realize that uh, I thought I was motivated by uh, pure intention to help working men and women. And then I realized, and after I retired, I realized, no, <laughs> there are no such things as pure motives. And there was a lot of ego involved. And I think this idea of mixed motives makes it very difficult in uh, identifying what's a right livelihood for oneself. And uh, takes a lot of uh, a lot of sitting and a lot of uh, really going deeply inside to, to to try and figure that out. Second thing was uh, I have this question about the associating hope and fear, and uh, I, I can't agree with that. Uh, I think that whenever we make a wishing uh, a blessing, like may my heart be open and free from fear, we're expressing a hope. And I think where fear gets involved is when it's an expectation. And we're saying, my heart should become open and free from fear. But the mere having of a hope, if we look at uh, FDR and lifting us out of the Depression, if he hadn't provided hope to the American people at that time, I don't know if we would have ever made it, you know. And so I, I, I think that Bhikkhu Bodhi needs to look at that translation again and see if yeah. something would work better than hope. Yeah, that's not Bhikkhu Bodhi. That's, uh, that, that's a Tibetan translation. But just remember, hope, that word, right? There's a wholesome part of hope, like I would use the word aspiration, you know, or having a vision of what's possible. But the word, the way hope is being used is with attachment, fixation, right? So whatever word you would use with that, Emil, you said expectation, right? So a lot of people, when they have hope, they expect this is the only way they can have happiness. Right? I need something. So what happens then when we have that idea of an aspiration of what might be possible, if it's outside of the moment, then we've set ourselves up. So a wise aspiration for freedom, for release, for happiness, has to include these conditions, or we've just negated this, and we've abstracted happiness as somewhere not here. And then that creates that problem where we're always trying to get somewhere instead of trying to get interested in what's here. So I don't want to go into it too much, but, but uh, there is a, a dichotomy between hope and fear if you don't like the word hope, use a different word, but it's really important to understand that it's not just fear that's the problem, that there's the positive and expecting that, attaching to that, that's a, a setup too, and they work together. And when you have this, you have that. When you have that, you have that. Does that make sense? Maybe not. Okay. <laughs> we have time maybe for one more before the kids come. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> hello. Um, just a quick observation on something that I found really helpful in dealing with this whole question of possessions, <clears throat> and it, it's just right out of the book. Um, I uh, really love the phrase from the chant. I think we did it last week. 
Um, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And I just find that to be so kind of miraculous because for me, what that says is, yes, this thing that I have that I think is be beloved and pleasing, yes, it is. It is beloved and pleasing. Yet, it will become otherwise. Yeah. It will become separated from me. So to have those two things existing side by side at any given moment when you're looking at something that you really cherish, I think is really wonderful. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you, Jeff. So we'll leave the words here. Kathy, will you check to see if the kids, they may not come in because they might go right to the potluck. Oh, okay. Good. Let's just let go of the words for a moment. Appreciate being here in the space together. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.